Well, we're grateful that you are joining us today, grateful this is a part of your weekend, this last weekend of August. Thanks so much for being here with us. And I want to do something. In the back, if you didn't get some message notes, they're back there, help you track along. But if you'd say, Todd, I'm so ready to move on from paper, let's do what Hilke did. Get your phone out, okay? And I want you to go to wherever your phone downloads apps, wherever that is, okay? I don't care what phone you have. I'm not going to make a big deal that my phone's better than yours. I don't care. I just want you to go where you get apps. And I want you to type that in, and once you punch that first, and then up in the search, I want you to type in Trinity Redlands. Oh, you might want to do church, by the way. Let's make sure. Scott told me how to do this, and I'm flubbing it up right in front of you. All right, look at that. It is the first one that pops up on my screen. Now, I don't have to say get because mine says open. I have it on my phone. But I would just tell you, our app is a, a thing that we actually are planning on utilizing more and more in the future. But in it, even today, the stuff that's going on, when you open it up, you can see what's going on calendar-wise this week. I've told you before, one of my favorite um, things about our app is under resources. Click on that, then go to sermon notes, and today's sermon notes are right there for you digitally. And because we know we love to fill in blanks, you can do that. They're not already filled in for you. You get to play along, okay? So I just want to encourage you, if you haven't downloaded our app, one of the things we're working on as a comm team is even working on uh, push notifications that just basically will remind you when things are going on that you would probably want to be alerted to. So download our app. It's just a great communication tool. Uh, we, there's no kickback. You know, for us, we're not pushing it for any other reason than we just think it's a helpful tool that we want to put in your hands and make more accessible. In the pandemic, man, it was amazing. We uploaded 450 um, versions of that app on our phones within about a week or two. It just went boom, and then it's kind of trailed off, and maybe sometimes we don't talk about it enough. People don't even know we have one, but it's just a great communication tool that we want to make readily available for you. Will you join us today as we are finishing up John chapter 10? We've taken the book, the Gospel of John, and kind of broken it into some portions, and this is the last today. I'll tell you what we're going into next month at the end of our time today, but this is the last of this chapters 5 through 10. So if you have a Bible today, you can make your way to John 10, and we'll dive in in just a minute. And this series, we have found it, these six chapters have been appropriately named Conspiracies, Adversaries, and Unbelief. We have seen it week over week. This is not just like, oh, there was one story in there, one narrative where there were people coming at Jesus. They're doing it every single week. And by the way, you won't miss out this week. It'll be there again. And the reality is, is I don't remember. I have read John through many times. I've never preached it through. I don't think I ever realized how much conflict is in this gospel. The other Gospels have conflict as well. Obviously, Jesus is interacting with oppositional Jewish religious leaders in all four of the Gospels, but John, it is a thick, thick theme. But remember what John is after. I'm writing these things so that you might believe. He's after belief. He doesn't want just knowledge of Jesus to be made known. He wants people to turn that corner, put down a stiff arm, and say, Jesus, you are exactly who you say you are. I indeed put my faith and trust and confidence in you. That is John's goal and his aim, and we're going to see today a really a, a, a balanced portion, if you might say, of those who still continue to be oppositional, 
but also some really great example of some people who were waiting all along to meet the Messiah they had heard about. So we finish this chapter, I think, in a really just encouraging way, and I'm excited to dive into it with you. So let's look at this. This is our now what statement for today, our goal as we walk out of here, what we want to hold on to. Hilke said earlier today, today we're going to see that theme one more time about sheep and shepherd. So within that, as Jesus is sheep, listen to his voice and follow where he leads. That sounds so simplistic, but I'll tell you, and you already know it, that is much harder to do than simply to read, right? And that's what our goal is today. God, strengthen our trust, our faith in you, just like the song we just sang. You are forever faithful. Help us to know it and live it every day of our lives. Number one in our notes today, there is great security and hope when you are one of Jesus' sheep. There is great security and hope when you are one of Jesus' sheep. We mentioned when we came into John 10 that these three weeks were going to have this great sense. We talk at Trinity Church that we want to continue to equip you, equip us to be a people who are rooted in Jesus as we're reaching our worlds. And this passage in particular today, along with the other two, really, again, helps us as we come in contact with this great shepherd, you will all the more want to sink those roots deeply within him, to continue to go, Jesus, you are trustworthy. Jesus, you are someone who holds me close, who knows me deeply. I don't want to stray. And as we look at that today, we'll also see the opportunity. What does that mean in the lives of people that God has strategically placed in your world? And where, how do we continue to be a people who are thoughtful and intentional in their lives? This passage today has both of those thoughts as bubbling to the top. We're in John chapter 10. We pick it up in verse 22. It says, Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were there gathered around him saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my father's name, they testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So let's um, let's kind of set the stage a little bit. We've realized that the sheep shepherd kind of narrative flowed right out of what happened in John 9 when Jesus healed a man who'd never seen the light of day, a man born blind. And that chapter 9 transitions right into chapter 10. And what we said was kind of odd about chapter 10, here is Jesus talking about spiritual blindness and spiritual sight. And then in, in 10, we just get the impression that it's, he never skips a beat. It's just a flow of thought. And then Jesus does something. He begins talking about sheep. And gives even the people there a kind of shepherding, sheep, sheep shepherding, I better stop talking, 101. Uh, and, and to us, we've actually found it helpful. We don't really live in that agrarian culture, but they were kind of like, Jesus, we know this stuff. But then Jesus moves from what they know to what they need. And what they need is to understand and respond to him as their good shepherd. 
And so we get this whole chapter, chapter 10, in all three segments that we've been looking at, each one is going to have the sheep shepherd conversation. Where we left off last week, that followed all the way through, but now what we just read, and it was later, it was winter. So now there's actually been a few weeks we read that that was going on related to the festival. It would have been in the fall. Now we kick it down the road a little bit to December. So just a few weeks later in winter, we see this situation going on. And John, again, uses feasts and festivals often to mark notes for us. This is when this is happening in the sequence. And he says that Jesus was at the temple during the festival or the feast of dedication. Now, that term might be a little bit odd to us. Like, I don't know which of the Jewish festivals that might be. And for some of us, all the Jewish festivals are unique to us. We don't know them at all. But this one's a little better known to you and I as Hanukkah. Okay, what we celebrate, what we understand, people in our culture, they celebrate today as Hanukkah. That is the festival that's being talked about. Now, this wasn't one of the festivals that Yahweh had commanded his people to keep because the occasion for Hanukkah had only happened 170 years prior to when this account is, well, a little more than that, 200 years prior to when Jesus is walking in the temple in the first century. It was 164 B.C., and it was following a Maccabean revolt that actually overcame an incredibly, they were incredibly outnumbered by a Syrian Greek army, and as a result, fought back and retained the city of Jerusalem, most primarily retained the, the, the worship in the temple. And the temple was rededicated, and as a result, we have the, the pieces of what happens on Hanukkah today, these lighting of these lights that commemorate an incredible victory over an oppressor. It's in this context that Jesus was back in the temple with the people. And the interesting thing is, he's, whenever we see in the book of John, the Jews, we've seen most often it relates to the Jewish religious leaders. And they put it to him. They say, Jesus, you, you've just been dodging the question, which we know is not the case, but you've been dodging the question so often. Just tell us plainly, are you the Messiah? As though he has just been all along sneaking in the shadows and not wanting to be forthcoming, you know, doing miracles, but no one knows. I mean, it's been all out there in front of them. They have eyewitness accounts of people who saying, I couldn't see and this guy healed me. But yet they want to create this situation of conflict one more time and it just demonstrates again and again how much they are steeped in unbelief. Think about this festival for just a second. I was processing this when I was studying this week. We said this is a festival that commemorates the rededication of the temple. Back in John chapter 2, we see the very first time that Jesus in his public ministry goes to the temple. He'd done it as a, a young man and a, and a boy prior to this, but he comes now in this public ministry and he starts talking about the temple and he says that, you can tear this temple down and he's going to raise it back in three days. And what we realized there, and John even tells us, he was talking about his body, not a, a building made of brick and stone. And, and he's telling the people that you have made a big deal about this stone temple. I you've made a big deal about this temple where you believe God uniquely inhabits. God is standing in front of you. Think about that for just a second. The irony now at Hanukkah 
in John chapter 10, a celebration of the rededication of the place where we defended and what God, where God uniquely dwells. It's all good. As they honor a temple, they're dishonoring the God standing right in front of them. They can't understand that what we have held as high and holy is set aside for something greater because he is here, Emmanuel, among us. It's a complete miss. And I think about that, and I was just kind of overwhelmed this week when I was studying and just realizing the incredible ships in the night idea of what they had in front of them, the one-of-a-kind God-man celebrating the place where they think he lives. But it's easy to keep looking out the window and forget to look in the mirror. Many of our stories here today include a time when we were face-to-face with the truth of this same God-man. Maybe he wasn't standing in front of us, but we had his word. We had people who loved him in our lives, and we kept stiff-arming them and saying, ah, you know, this is all great and good, but not for me. And so it's so easy to see the flaws and the misses in other people's lives, but forget we had missed We had looked right past him and believed he was something different than now who we've come to embrace and understand. You are the one-of-a-kind, unique son of God. You are my good shepherd. And so Jesus picks up that language. That's what's so interesting. This is weeks after the earlier part of John chapter 10. But he goes right into this idea of this sheep-shepherd concept. And and beforehand, Jesus is telling them, if you want to know who I am, I've already told you, but but if you don't believe the words I say, at least look at the things I've done. We're going to see that theme come up again before we're done today. Look at the, the good works. Look at the miracles I've done. How do you explain those? Don't discount those and try to say, oh, but we don't want to talk about that. We want to talk about this. Those have to be included in the conversation. Actions that are backed up, that back up words, works I do in my Father's name that testify about me. So what we see again is it's not an issue of do they have enough information? They have plenty. It's do you have any faith of which they have none? Jesus picks up this theme again of sheep shepherd, this metaphor, and he picks it up almost without skipping a beat. It's been weeks in time, but for us, we just read into the next passage, and here he goes again. He's talking about what it looks like for him to be the good shepherd and for his people to be his sheep, his true, authentic sheep. Listen to some of these characterizations that are true, both of the sheep and of the shepherd. True sheep hear his voice. He said that earlier, my sheep won't follow other voices because they know the tone. They know what their shepherd's voice sounds like. They have direction and understanding that comes directly from him. True sheep are known by him. We talked about that a little bit last week. You and I see a flock of sheep on a hillside. We just see a group of woolly mammals. But the shepherd knows them individually. And I want you to know who knows who. It's the shepherd who knows the sheep. Okay, he has an intimate personal knowledge of them. We know that they follow him. 
that he leads, but they have confidence in his leadership and they will go where he goes. He said that these genuine sheep, they receive eternal life. So these sheep are like no other, is that they will continue to be his flock into all of eternity. That is so amazing. They will not perish. They have nothing to fear about what we saw a few weeks ago. John talks about in the book of Revelation, a second death. A second death. We know from the book of Hebrews, all of us are destined to die once. But it's the second death that Jesus saves us from, rescues us from. And in that, we will not perish. And Jesus is genuine sheep. Nobody can snatch these sheep from his hand because they've been given to him by the Father. Nobody can snatch. So think about what we've said. Sheep we've talked about are so defenseless so incredibly dependent. I can just imagine one of these woolly, um, I want to keep saying woolly mammoth. It's not, it's woolly mammal, okay? But I can imagine this woolly mammal on the, on the hillside and knowing kind of how it is, and, and this is the defense mechanism that a sheep has, and that's about as fast, right? It's not a real running, fleeting, get out of the way. So you're a lunch waiting to happen. I can imagine a sheep constantly looking over the shoulder and going, who is coming to eat me today? Jesus' sheep don't worry about who's going to snatch them from his hand because they're secure in his hand. But watch this. And they're secure because the Father that, that phrase, who is greater than all, that's a Greek word that we use every single day. He is mega. He is mega. No one contends. There is no one on par. And he's the one who hands over these sheep to his son. So look in your notes. Look at this sequence of truths. Who you are when you're a part of God's flock. You hear his voice. You are known by him. You follow him. You've received eternal life. You will not perish. No one can snatch you away because from Jesus' hand because you've been given to Jesus by his Father who is mega, who is greater than all. Yea, God. Yea, God. That is good to have those things be true of your life. That is powerful. And, and we just have this great sense, God, it is so good to be yours. It is so good to be known by you. And I want to say this today. It is good to be known. It is good to be his sheep in Southern California. It is good to be his sheep in Louisiana, where a hurricane is staring them in the face. It is good to be his sheep in Haiti as they're picking up the rubble from an incredibly devastating earthquake. It is good to be his sheep even in Afghanistan where persecution is breaking out all over the country. It's not just good to be his sheep when everything seems great. It's good to be his sheep every single moment of the day. And that's a powerful thing to just go, God, I'm so grateful to be yours. Now, something that has next to nothing to do with anything, but I just so badly wanted to show you while we were talking about sheep and shepherd. 
Bill Bourne and I grew up in this area. We would love everything about contemporary Christian music and kind of the harder the better. So on Sunday nights, we listen to Reality Rock. Take a look at this picture. These are some of their bumper stickers. And I put this white one on my guitar case. And if you can't see the fine print underneath, Rock in the Flock. <laughs> love it. And that's all I wanted to show you. All right? It had nothing to do with anything. I just couldn't help it if we we're talking about sheep and shepherd. Now, you, you hear all of these things that are so just beyond heartwarming. They're just so deeply soul-satisfying. Jesus, thank you for including me. You know you didn't fight your way into the flock. You were chosen. You were picked. You were called. So with great humility, we say thank you. But here's the wild thing. There are people who hear this same set of realities. This is true for all the sheep in my flock. They're provided for, they're cared for, they're deeply loved, they'll never perish. They, they, I know them intensely. No one's going to snatch them away. All these things are true for all the sheep and all my flock, but some people will hear those realities and where you're drawn to them, where you go, thank you, Jesus, they go, no. For reasons like, it's too good to be true. For reasons like, I bet there's a catch. I'm just waiting for it. Haven't heard it yet, but I'm sure it's coming. Or maybe even, if I become one of Jesus' sheep, I can't remain my own shepherd. Whatever it is, they still resist. And here's a simple point that Jesus said in this passage, because they're not my sheep. Now, I want to say this. They're not his sheep yet. I sovereignly believe that God has chosen sheep that are going to be his. But the interesting thing is we haven't been let in on who that is. And so we have a role. We have this opportunity to be a people of influence. But we know, here's the big picture we always know, God is the one who is doing a work. Look at what we've already read in John chapter 6. Jesus went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. The only way that you have, in a salvific way, put your faith in Jesus is because God was doing something to awaken you and to draw you to him, enabling you to. And that was met with a genuine faith. And so within that, there is this saving, rescuing thing that happens in this combination of those realities. What Jesus is saying is, is that it begins with God waking people up and then responding in faith. So what do you do with the people that you've identified in your relational world? People that God has supernaturally, strategically placed you in a place to be influential for the kingdom's sake. What do you do for the people that you are investing in, that you are praying for, you're inviting to come to Trinity to come and see? What do you do? You keep praying. And you keep saying, God, I don't know who you have called to be in your flock. And my prayer is, it's my neighbor. My prayer is, it's my extended family member. It's, my prayer is, it's my child. And so I'm going to keep being a person, a prayer and influence, and I'm going to see that maybe someone that now, as of now, is not in your flock is someone that may, one may, may be. And for us, that's our role to keep that sense of, God, I want to keep being investing, being involved, 
And my prayer is, is that you will somehow use me and the other people in their lives to see them come to this place where they realize I need this Jesus that you've been showing me. Jesus finishes this passage with what we've talked about a couple weeks ago as a mic drop. I and the Father are one. Not just about this intimate relationship he has with Yahweh, but the fact of deity. And guess what? Jesus' listeners, they knew exactly what he was saying. We pick it up in the next part of our passage. Number two in our notes today, belief in Jesus was expected to be based on actions and not just words. Belief in Jesus was expected to be based on actions and not just words. John 10, 31, we pick it up right after Jesus has said, I and the Father are one. Again, his Jewish opponents, look at that word, it's, it's adversarial, we are against you. His Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? <laughs> for which miracle are you picking up rocks right now? We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law? I have said you are gods, small g gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one whom the father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said I am God's son? Do not believe me unless I do the works of my father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. So Jesus makes, and here's the, here's the odd thing, right? How did this passage begin today? If you're really the Messiah, just say it. He does. Grab a rock. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just there's, there's humor in the whole thing. Just come out and say it plainly. I and the Father are one. Oh, that's it. And, and the, again, the response to Jesus continuing to offer himself, demonstrate himself to be the one-of-a-kind, unique Son of God, to others causes them to fall on their face and worship, and to these causes them to pick up rocks and want to kill him. This is that incredible division between belief and unbelief. So he asked them, for what thing are you, for what good work, for what supernatural miracle are you stoning me today? And they're quick to say, oh, none of that, like, that stuff doesn't count. But you, you would claim to be God, how dare you, and we're gonna, we're gonna take you out. This is a fascinating thing to me. I was thinking about that a little bit this week. The idea that they had witnessed, remember, these are people who had firsthand, it was the formerly blind guy who comes to them and has this really kind of humorous dialogue back and forth. Do you want to believe him too? All that thing was going on. They, they witnessed people who firsthand said, Jesus did this to me. He healed me in a way that no one can explain. And yet they continue to want to resist that truth. And what they come after him for is they say, how dare you have the audacity to say that you are God? What's fascinating, I was reading in Carson this week, and he put this so powerfully about what was really going on. Look in your notes. Jesus, a mere mortal, claims to be literally makes himself God, lining himself up on the other side of the unbridgeable chasm that separates the transcendent, infinite creator from his finite and fallen creatures. For the reader, 
though, the irony is palpable. Jesus has not made himself God. He himself, the eternal word, the word that was with God and was God. He is the unique son, utterly obedient to his father and doing everything the father does. As the son, there has indeed been a change in his status, but one that is almost the reverse of what the Jews think. He has obediently and humbly accepted the incarnation. The word became flesh and the son became a man. I just think he articulates that so well. Here they are accusing him of wanting to be so grand and beyond his state when they've completely missed that the God, the second triune member of the Trinity, has lowered himself to become man. It's just the opposite of what they're accusing him of, of being so, quote, full of himself. Philippians 2, he emptied himself, took on the appearance of man. I, I want to park here for just a second. I was thinking about this. We've talked, and in, in this time in John 5 through 10, we brought up multiple times. There's multiple occasions in these six, verse, six chapters where Jesus makes it very clear, I'm not holding back or hiding my deity. Not only in the miracles, but even in saying it, I and the Father are one. How do we finish chapter 8? I am. So we've seen this time and time again, and we've seen that though there are some in the culture who would want to say, Jesus was a wonderful first century rabbi. And I really appreciate his teachings. But they, kind of like the Jewish religious, religious leaders in the first century, but they're going to reject anything supernatural he did and absolutely reject that he was God. Now, we've talked about that all around, and this is what we keep coming back to. We've said, because that takes the ability to have faith, to have belief that Jesus is that person. But the other thing that we've talked about is we've said that Jesus never creates the scenario where you can just look at him like a good teacher. He pushes that envelope over the edge. And we've talked about what do you do today, 21st century, what do we do today with people who claim to be God? We often want to assess their mental health. We do. Or second general category, it's a cult leader who demands obedience, it's usually a male, to everything he says. But here's the wild thing. I was thinking about this week along this line of, of comments that Jesus is making. The person with mental health problems and the cult leader, here's one thing neither of them ever have. They never have the actions to back up the words. All they can say is because you ought to. Believe me because I say so. Believe me because I've been to the mount. No one was there to witness it. But believe me because... Jesus alone has not only the words, the claims, but he has the actions to back them up. I don't think I've ever seen it as clearly as I've seen it in this passage this week. And no one else has those things that accompany that. That again sets him apart. We said it before, every other religious leader who has ever lived, you can visit their grave. Jesus's is empty. It makes him completely unique from anyone else, but this also makes him unique. Nobody ever had the actions. They only had the claims. Jesus had both. 
when he goes on, uh, he goes on to walk them down a logical path, because remember, they're all kind of bent out of shape. How dare you claim to be the son of God? He quotes from Psalm 82. Let me show you a little more of the context of that psalm, beginning in verse 1 of Psalm 82. God presides in the great assembly. He renders judgment among the, and you'll note, in quote, small g, gods. And I think what Psalm 82 is about is God is among those mortal men's men who believe themselves to be God, right? These are like uh, military and political leaders, those who've esteemed themselves to be on par with the Most High. This passage says God is among them. Their, their, their plans and their ideas are not secret. Then down to verse 5, the gods, again in, print, in quotes, know nothing. They understand nothing. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. Now, here's the part Jesus quotes. I said, you are gods, small g, you are all sons of the Most High. But you will die like mere mortals. You will fall like every other ruler. Jesus' point is, why is it so audacious to say that I'm the son of God when in Psalm 82, God talking about mere mortals made in his image are sons of the Most High. Is it that big of a stretch that God would inhabit a, a, the body of a mortal and appear among you? Is that so bizarre? I think in their minds they were having a hard time. A Messiah to them, remember, a lot of it was a political and a religious leader that they didn't even maybe in some cases dare to believe was going to be God, just a good leader, a strong military political leader. Jesus is saying, back in Psalm 82, God talked about the incredible value that just human beings made in the image of God have, and he calls them sons of the living God. I'm telling you, I am the son of the living God and you are struggling so hard to believe that. Simple question. We said that Jesus had the goods, maybe a crude way of saying it. He made the claims and he had the works to back it up, to say this is the whole package. I am claiming to be deity and I'm showing you that I am. Simple question for us today now, 2,000 years later, what about us that can't interact, none of us can interact with Jesus face to face like they could in the first century, so they don't see those deeds, as it were, those, those supernatural miracles with their eyes face to face. The claims even they're hearing now through the written word of God, well, how is it that today the gospel has actions that back up the claims? So Jesus is making a pretty strong point in the first century. I'm not just telling you things and just tell you to believe me. I'm showing you they're legitimate. 2,000 years later, when we will share scripture with someone, what is the action that backs up the words? Well, we believe one unique ingredient is going on today that the Spirit of God is at work awakening and quickening people so they can respond. But John, this gospel writer, he'll say it this way later on in an epistle that he wrote. 1 John chapter 4. Dear friends, verse 11, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So out of that vertical love comes a horizontal love. Verse 12, no one has ever seen God. 
But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other well, they will. They will see that supernatural love that we have for one another and they'll go, that's something I can't explain. That's something that people, other people in my community, in my culture, don't love each other like that. I don't know what to do with that kind of koinonia, in commonality kind of fellowship and love that speaks to the power of the gospel. That's the actions that back up the claims, is how we, his people, demonstrate love to one another. In your notes, people see God in us and through us by the way that we love one another. That's the action speak louder than words aspect of the gospel today. And we'll see more of that concept later in John's gospel in this upper room discourse. Finally, today we finish number three. Belief in Jesus often comes through a process of multiple people testifying to who he is. Belief in Jesus often comes through a process of multiple people testifying to who he is. And we finish very sweetly with these last three verses today, John 10, 40. Then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. There he stayed, and many people came to him. They said, though John never performed a sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. Can I tell you, in John's gospel, we haven't seen that phrase in a long time. We've seen a lot of contention. We've seen a lot of conflict. But in that place, many believed in Jesus. As we finish today, just a few phrases from those verses we read. To the place where John had been baptizing in the early days, Jesus leaves the Jewish stronghold of Jerusalem, goes to the other side of the Jordan. Okay, this is not where the Jewish elite live now. Now he's going to another part where these just kind of normal, simple people live. But these are normal, simple people who had already been seated with the thought of who Jesus was because it says that this is a place where John had been baptizing I remember what John's mission was, was to be the forerunner, to tell everyone he came in contact with, the Messiah's on his way. It says, many people came to him. We've seen this all throughout John's gospel. Jesus was winsome. People were drawn to him. They wanted to come up next to him and hear him and understand him. All that John said about this man was true. I love the way it said this. He didn't perform any signs. So John's ministry wasn't one of miraculous signs, just prophetic words. But these people, now that they're seeing Jesus in the flesh, now that they're interacting with him, now that they're teaching him, they have this great phrase, everything he said about Messiah was true. And that's so powerful when you think, what did John say? Here comes the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was throwing seed his entire ministry. And it wouldn't even be in his lifetime. We read earlier in this gospel in John 6, John has lost his life by now. But it's the seed he was throwing that God was ultimately going to use and connect the dots in people's lives. 
You don't know this, but you're, a lot of you are my Facebook friends. And so I see your posts throughout the week. Scott Blakey's here with us in this service this morning. Scott posted a great thing this week about a student coming back and just simply saying, what you shared in class didn't mean a lot to me then, but it did later. And it really helped me in my faith with the Lord. You see, you and I, we're doing that in our different environments. We're throwing, we're scattering seed. We're called to that. We've seen all throughout John's gospel, even though John had a one-of-a-kind, unique ministry as the forerunner of the Messiah, we found ourselves in John chapter 1 identifying with him and saying, that's kind of who we're supposed to be, people who keep testifying to the goodness and the love and the deity of who Jesus is. In your notes... As we share accurately who Jesus is and live authentically his transforming work in our lives, people will have the opportunity to say that, uh, that about what we do and say. Everything that, and I want you to write your name in there, everything that Todd said about Jesus was true. Don't write my name, write yours, okay? <laughs> everything that you said about Jesus was true. As we live lives that are authentic, they're not perfect, they're with flaw, flaws, they're that which also just demonstrates, keeps pointing people to him, the transforming work that happens in our own lives, then people will be able to say, everything they told me about Jesus was true. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. We have seen so much unbelief throughout this book. It is just so refreshing to see that people outside of Jerusalem and all its religious prestige on the other side of the Jordan come and they've realized, Jesus, you are not only who you say you are, you are who John said you are, and we believe. That's our desire at Trinity Church, is to continue to equip all of us to be a people who have a real relationship with Jesus that continues to grow deep roots as we are a people facing outward, looking for opportunities to be people of influence in our relational worlds. We want to keep being that people, and I'm excited as we kind of bring a close to this section of these six chapters of John. They'll set us up really well for when we come back. Here's what I want to do in the month of September. We have looked at this metaphor of sheep and shepherd for three weeks now. It's a powerful metaphor. We see it literally front to back of all of scriptures, this beautiful picture. Jesus is the good shepherd. We're the sheep. The interesting thing is what we can tend to do is find metaphors for the church and say that's what the church is. The church is a blank. And you would be right. The church is that. But the difference is the church is also a lot of other things. There are so many metaphors in the New Testament of what our relationship both to Jesus and to his people looks like. So what I want to do in the month of September, we're not going to cover all of them, but we're going to cover four metaphors for the church. And each week we're going to take a look at one of them. I think our graphic is up on the screen Four metaphors for the church, and in that, we're going to take a look each week. And the first one, I want to invite you back, come back next week, and we're going to look at what does it mean when Jesus says that he is the head and we are the body of Christ. That's where we're going to dive in. Until then, this week, let's be a people that as Jesus is sheep, let's listen to his voice and let's follow where he leads. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today as the sheep. We've recognized in the last three weeks that we are very defenseless. We are incredibly dependent. We need you. And, and interestingly, that's never a knock. 
meaning that you're never surprised by that. You created us. You built us with that understanding. And the reason why that's okay is because you're the good shepherd. So God, help us huddle close. Help us have ears to hear, eyes to see where our shepherd is leading. Help us have great confidence in him this week, in you, that no matter what may come, that you are still this good shepherd defined by the things you said today in your word. And would we take great comfort that we are yours. You may be here today and you would have to say, Todd, I have never actually entered into this flock. I've never made this decision to say, Jesus, I lay down my shepherd's staff. I want you to be my good shepherd. Well, the great news is you can do that right here and right now. A, admit that you're a sinner who needs a savior. Admit that you've been a sheep kind of off in your own direction. B, believe. Believe that Jesus is the only savior available. Believe he is the good shepherd who said every single thing we've read today that came from his mouth. And that's the way he loves and desires you in his flock. See is choose. Choose to say, Jesus, I put my confidence, my trust, my belief that you are that good shepherd and I'm gonna live my life listening to your voice and following you closely. Father, we love you this week. Would we be a people who say, you are the good shepherd. Would we relish in the fact that we're in your flock and would we desire God to be useful in your hand to others in our lives that are not yet in that flock. Use us this week as we pray, as we continue to invest in lives. We love you and we pray in Jesus' great name. Amen.